on the uh, relay, do you think they could have got him with a little better relay? Well, they could have. I just noticed, too, on the relay, when McAuliffe goes out on the ball like that, well, you know it's an extra base hit. Stanley, the shortstop, is supposed to go out there and back him up. Mickey did not go out there. If that ball would have gotten by McAuliffe, McCarver could have gone all the way. Hey, happy Saturday, and welcome to episode number 60, I believe it is, or is it 61? I think it's 61. 61. It's the, it's the Roger Maris episode, not the Babe Ruth episode. My name is Ron Collins. I am the general manager of the uh, Yellow Springs Nine, and I am joined, as always, by Ted, general manager of Nobody Schmidt, uh, to talk about the BBA today. We have turned the calendar to September 15th of 2044, which means we're running uh, down to the uh, tail end of the season. What kinds of things are going through your mind here today? Not much. I actually was always kind of checked out during this portion of the season, even when I was a GM, because I feel like, you know, unless you're embroiled in a wild card race, there's really not a whole heck of a lot going on. You know, it, there's you're just kind of looking for the uh, team that gets destroyed by an injury that they have no chance to recover from. And Otherwise, you're just playing out the string a little bit and hoping you don't have any players get injured yourself. This is always kind of the waiting out this part of the year and hoping nothing too terrible happens. But, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, it is actually the time of year where you see a lot more dichotomy of where teams are sitting at because uh, uh, clubs are beginning to get eliminated. We've got six or eight teams eliminated from the chase completely. The, the work that goes on within the executive suites of those teams probably is a little bit more low-grade, um, you know, picking around at teams and so forth. Actually, I thought it was interesting. One of the interesting moves of a team that's already out of it, this uh, sim was that Wichita sent uh, who, pitcher Julio Velasquez, uh, Rule 5 pick, <laughs> back to Portland here. And it's September. You don't usually see Rule 5 picks return to teams in September. And I thought that was an interesting little dynamic. Are you up on that? Um, I had heard some, I had heard some rumbling about it. I probably wrongly so, but I consider the, in general, the rule five to just be such a waste of everyone's time that, um, I don't really pay any attention to it at all. And that's not to say that like mistakes haven't been made, um, where big players have moved in the rule five and they shouldn't have, but, being a team that was competitive every single year, I maybe drafted one Rule 5 player the entire time I had a team. And I actually kept him on the roster. Um, somebody left a like a 23-year-old, I want to say his name was like Ibarra or something, a 23-year-old reliever that was uh, not totally developed. And I was like, you know what? I suck this. I'm, well, I wasn't. I didn't suck, but I was like an 80-win team, and I had an open spot in the bullpen. That was like really early on in my tenure, and I just figured I can ride him out the whole year, and maybe he'll develop, maybe he won't. And I kept him, and he didn't develop, and I ended up—I think I ended up waving him, and someone else took him. So that's my whole yeah, rule I, five. I think experience. at the at the end of the day, rule five is probably a tool that is much more geared toward those teams at the lower end of the spectrum who can find a a useful guy to throw in for a season or two while they're building. In this particular like, case. It's got to be the in, really low end of the spectrum. Like, because the Rule 5 guys, they just... The players available in the Rule 5 are almost always pretty terrible. So. Yeah, almost always, but there are some who make a difference. I've used Rule 5 twice, I think, uh, in my 20 years. Not uh, in the last about 5 or 10 years, I have not used it at all. Uh, for exactly the reason that you're talking about, is that I'm already kind of chock full of stuff, and there's... No, no players that I can throw in. But actually, I think I actually drafted a starting a guy who started in left field for me for a year and a half, and then another bit player utility guy way back in the in the mid twenties when I was taking over a sixty win team. But yes, I mean that at the end of the day, I don't want to overblow any Rule Five stuff. Most of the time, Rule Five is not going to get you a, a big deal. Julio Velasquez was an interesting case though because. Uh, it was a combination of an error and then another interesting twist from Nigel in Wichita. Uh, Velasquez was a older player, 35, 36 years old, and was uh, signed by Portland to a three-year deal. And then in the error, I think, was left off of the 40-man roster. 
So Wichita picked him up at a three and a half million dollar per year. I think he had two years and a third year as a vesting option or something like that, a team option and a vesting option. Then he broke his elbow here a week or two ago and the financial discussion decision that uh, is being publicly discussed on the boards anyway is that uh, Wichita decided they would not want to pay him three and a half million dollars next year. So they returned him. And uh, now Portland gets to deal with the question of do I keep the team option or the uh, vesting option? And if they don't, then Portland has to pay the <laughs> pay the buyout. Uh, so, which, so Wichita basically saved themselves a million bucks. Uh, on the other hand, Velasco was pitching quite well for them. And so what I actually wonder is whether Portland sent Kate in to do some special work to make some decisions on the Wichita side of the fence and whether we're actually seeing a, a element of corporate espionage going on here. So <laughs> who knows? I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't to to me, I still feel like there's not a whole lot of news here, and, and the real the reason is is because the news is Portland's initial mistake, right? That's the that's the news here. The rest of this is all just what happens. Is oh, it, yeah. is it strange that I would do it? I would have done exactly what Nigel did. Like you know, you got an older pitcher, owed money, broke something, and if you can get out of that contract for nothing because somebody else made a mistake. Oh yeah, they absolutely do that. So, yeah. No, I thought it was. I thought it was wise, but it's also intriguing it's, it's because a you don't thing see that see. situation yeah. very often. Yeah, no, but that's what comes kind of back to what I said earlier, and, and not to be. I mean, this is interesting and kind of fun, so I, I don't mean to totally be a poopy pants about it. But um, it kind of comes back to what I said earlier. The rule five is only interesting if someone screws up. Like otherwise, it's you know, it, there's players of note or salaries aren't going to move unless somebody makes a mistake. That would not happen in real life. Because... It would be interesting to come back to this conversation in a year or three, um, assuming that you have picked up a team that is in complete disarray and see if your perspective has changed any whatsoever. Because well, it, I'm going to tell you, I think it's a small section of teams that it, Rule 5 actually has some specific value for. It probably won't, because I still probably won't participate in the Rule 5. And the reason for that is we do not, for very good reasons, I'm not saying we should, it would be a pain, but we don't have a mechanism in place such that when you look at the Rule 5 draft list that it actually represents the players who will be Rule 5 eligible. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've got a whole bunch of, we, we basically have the pre-roster set list. You know, yeah. it's the eye of all the players that I, like, probably 95% of the players you would consider taking in the Rule 5 on the list that you get get put on rosters before right. the selection process happens. And so I don't have the time for that nonsense. Yeah, I think that's actually, mechanically, that's the biggest problem that we have with Rule 5. To fix it, it I mean, it would not be hard to fix. It would just require us to do an extra sim. Well, but you'd have to delay. enforce it, right? Yeah. What, what would you do if people didn't? Like, if you had an extra sim and you said... Your Rule 5 has sent, like roster has to be in place, or this is the get your Rule 5 roster in place and we'll do the draft next sim. What would you do if teams just didn't? Well, you'd put in a rule that says that if, uh, if that happened, then there would be a penalty. And that would, you'd have to enforce some kind of a penalty to do it. Right. You, you're right. In game mechanics, it could still be done, but. You know, the penalty would ultimately be, you know, hey, I, I drafted this guy and he was removed. Give me give me the guy. <laughs> that would be the penalty. Can, I think. You freeze, can you freeze rosters in game? Can you like have a sim where you don't allow transactions? Because oh, that would know. fix it. If you could do that, that would fix it. You would just be like, well, if it's frozen, then people would the, the penalty would be losing. Yeah, I mean, there, you're play. you're uh, discussing the difference between a social rule and a mechanically enforced game rule. If we could yeah. have a mechanically enforced game rule, that would be uh, that would be good. Or there could be a feature in Out of the Park that says you have to set your Rule Five 40-man roster by this date, and mm -hmm. no changes can be made from this date until Rule Five. That would be a mechanical thing that OTP could do to help us. I may actually put that in as a suggestion That's for online leagues because that would actually solve a lot of those problems. I agree with you 100%. Unless I am a 
when when I was in my 20, 25, 27 range and I was coming up the curve, I was paying a lot of attention to rule five. It was for me, it was worth the energy that it took to do it at that point. But I agree 100% that given the fact that you just have this big pile of players and three quarters of the ones you're interested in, you know, aren't actually going to be there. It is emotionally draining to go through the work yeah. to, to pick guys. But, yeah, I'm not saying I wouldn't, it's not worth it. I'm just telling you, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so well, moving into and taking a look uh, real quickly at the actual standings and teams that um, are still in it, because I do think there's kind of this three tiers, right? You talk about guys who aren't actually paying attention too much because they don't have a lot to do. You've got other teams, uh, Yellow Springs, Rockville, um, who are kind of um, essentially kind of locks already. So we're just kind of playing the waiting game and trying to make sure we don't hurt people. <laughs> but then you've got this kind of middle zone that is still in the scrum for uh, for wildcard slots. And we've got some interesting runs right now. Um, Brooklyn at two and a half games up uh, on a wildcard is in pretty good shape. Uh, but, you know, if you're a Brooklyn fan, you've still got to be worried. But Edmonton and Phoenix are in a, a death match now for the uh, Johnson League wild card. Mexico City at two games back is still definitely in the hunt and moving back up after a horrible, <laughs> horrible uh, late summer. Arguably, Boise and Charm City are technically still in the race at four games out of the wild card, but they would need some kind of a lightning miracle to happen, and that's unlikely. Yeah. Over in the Frick League, got uh, Nashville and Omaha in. Omaha is probably fairly safe. It really depends on what happens to Sim, probably. With Chicago and Louisville deadlocked for that last slot in Seattle, uh, San Fernando seems to have faded at five and a half games. They would need a miracle of monstrous proportions. Uh, Seattle is still in it at two and a half games. So there's a collection of like eight or ten teams that are still on the edge. Yeah, and I think like the the reflex right at this point is to look at the schedule. And before we talk about that, um, how much do you think that matters in baseball? Like, just given that the you know the good team doesn't win eighty percent of the time in baseball, they win like fifty three percent of the time in baseball. Does the should we be putting a lot of stock into the who has the considerably tougher or easier schedule for these last games, or do you think that really doesn't matter too much? I think it matters, but not too much. Okay. I mean, it's fair, you know, the, the better team wins like 55% of the time or something like that. And the home team wins, you know, there's a 4% or whatever home field advantage in baseball. And that does seem to play out in out of the park when I have looked at it. Um, so you add those up and maybe it gives you a, you know, a 60, 40 kind of swing still. So, you know, how much does it matter? Well, you know, flip a coin 14 times uh, that's weighted to 60, 40. And that's kind of what the, what it matters. The 40, the, the lower lesser team can still definitely win. Yeah. So when we look at these actual situations, Mexico city looks like they're in trouble just because they're remaining, you know, they have to play San Antonio four more times. They have to play Phoenix, which is good for them, but that's not an easy win right now. They've got to play Edmonton. Again, they can make their own luck, but they have to beat them. They've got three games against Calgary, and they easily have the toughest schedule left of those three teams. Um, Phoenix has the easiest. They play, you know, Boise, Las Vegas, Wichita, and then Mexico, which, you know, it's, again, some of those aren't pushovers, but that's the best one. And Edmonton isn't too bad either. They have, you know, Wichita, Mexico, Boise, Vegas. So I think it's still pretty tough to say between Phoenix and Edmonton, which is more likely to get in. Um, Edmonton has had yet another injury. They lost a catcher. Yeah. So they lost their starter for seven to eight weeks. So they're now to, down to, uh, Captain Bogan. Um, yep. so if, if Edmonton makes the playoffs this year, it really will be an impressive display of depth. Just, just with what they've gone through. And then over on the Frick side, you might actually consider betting on Seattle to, to leapfrog both of those teams. Seattle gets to play Hawaii, Sacramento, Vancouver, San Fernando. Yeah, they definitely get the Pacific benefit. Yeah, whereas, thanks. I still have some loyalty <laughs> to that division. Um, whereas Louisville has to play you, 
and Nashville and Chicago. And, you know, Chicago's got some tough games. I, I think probably Seattle won't leapfrog both of those but it, teams, but it wouldn't be surprising. So in between Chicago and Louisville, I think you pretty much have to flip a coin. You know, one schedule's tight slightly. It's so close that I, I don't know that you could predict with any sort of certainty. Which would make yeah, it, well, so. and it's and you got to throw Nashville and technically Omaha in the mix. Omaha at a game and a half up has got to be feeling fairly comfortable that they're not going to get overtaken by three teams. Right. It's possible. Everything is possible at this stage, right? You can roll roll lots of dice. Everything is possible. But if you throw Nashville, Chicago, and Louisville in there, uh, Seattle needs to overcome two of those three. And that is actually possible, too, because those three are going to be beating each other up. Um, right. Although I think Nashville, if I remember right, I haven't looked at it this morning. I think Nashville has a little bit uh, nicer schedule overall, so they might oh. be in a better spot. But they've also been struggling. So yeah, they've got three against Des Moines, but they've got Louisville and Omaha. They've yeah. got Twin Cities, so it's not. They probably of those, you know, it, there aren't too many Heartland teams that aren't strong right now. So to catch two of them is probably the easiest schedule of the group. It's certainly doable. Yeah, I would feel. I mean, I feel like everything we've touched is just turned into brass at this point, or something <laughs> terrible, you know. And um, I don't know why I thought brass was terrible because it looks like gold and it isn't maybe. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I, I thought I, I do remember distinctly saying that something awful would have to happen for Nashville to not make the playoffs. And, well, here we are. So, sorry. Um, well, I mean, something combination of something awful plus Omaha has turned into a bit of a beast. So, um, you know, that's Omaha is one of the more interesting teams that maybe we'll talk about more as we get into the postseason because while they are definitely still on edge, definitely interesting. I've got one injury that I want to talk about that is uh, intriguing. There are a couple of them that have occurred or a couple setbacks and things like that. Uh, but I thought the most interesting injury uh, was actually a setback from Rockville's Matthew Riley, who is uh, dealing uh, with, I think it's a back thing. I can't remember. I have to look at it here real quick. Uh, but he is Rockville's you know, starting DH and has been on this day-to-day -day injury for a little while. And now he's got this setback and he's going to be six more days. I'm intrigued that, that uh, Rockville is actually playing him right now as a hyperextended ankle, not a back. So I was actually kind of interested uh, that that he was still playing while day-to-day -day injured while the team is kind of in a coast mode into the postseason and has now clinched. I don't know whether they clinched just this sim or, or not, but I don't know if you've seen that or not. What are your thoughts about playing – guys through day-to-day -day injuries in this kind of situation? Yeah, I, I don't ever play anybody with day-to-day -day injuries just because they seem to let, they seem to, I mean, this could be confirmation bias, but like in my experience, I feel like I expect them, if I play them, that they will continue to be day-to-day -day injuries or maybe turn into a real one. And that seems to be what always happens. Um, so I almost never play them. I could see that if you are in, the midst of a race. I mean, Rockville's never had like a comfortable lead to want to bench a player. I, I can see why you wouldn't want to do that. It's your DH. His opportunities for further injury are lower because of that. He doesn't have to play in the field. But I, I do find it. I would think that Aaron would have had an option that isn't tremendously worse than Riley to give him, you know, a, a week or two off a while ago. I would imagine at this point, you know, like Willis Roberts is the backup DH, also left-handed. I don't really see a tremendous reason that he couldn't be playing instead. So uh, it's it's interesting. Uh, is it is you know Matthew Riley, despite his ratings, really hasn't had that great of a year. So um, you know, been kind of a league average hitter at the DH, which is essentially replacement level. And uh, he's been better than that in the past, so I don't think he's a bad player. He's just kind of been one of those perplexingly bad years. I I, I don't know. I, I think the impact there will be fairly small, and maybe that played into what Aaron was thinking, is that, well, he's not been really that great this year, so if he gets hurt from this, do I really care? You know, maybe it plays a role into it. So what, it, what I found is that Aaron generally seems to have uh, more 
thought out reasons for doing things than I do. So I never, I don't really like to try to guess. Um, my reasons for doing things are pretty much, I have, a, I have a book and I go by my book and my book's very short. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, the old, it's the old Tampa Bay Ray book of Paul Snell at, uh, at 78 pitches, no matter what. Yeah. More or less that sort of stuff. <laughs> I, well, and, and the reason is that not so much because I'm convinced that I'm right, but because if I don't do what I say that I'm going to do, how am I supposed to measure the effectiveness of my plan, right? So if I'm always making the, well, but in this case, I'll do this, but in this case, I'll do this. But, you know, I know that I think that I should do this and my strategy is to do A, but because this case is a little bit different, I'm, if I always do that, how do I know if what I'm doing is working or not? So I tend to stick to what I think is the best way to do things so that when I, so that when I look at the results, I can decide whether or not I was right. But of course, the problem is that you can't always decide when you're right based on the results. Well, this is, you know, over 10 years, not over the immediate results. Right. But if you could, if you could actually go back and review the decision to pull Snell and run it 100 times and find out what the answers were over 100 times, then you get a much better decision, right? <laughs> anyway. I don't know that you do, right? Is that like a, I don't know the name of that particular fallacy, but like it's the sort of thing where if you, does does the results of any of those performances have any predictive value? I suppose they do. I suppose if you've done it that many, it's the whole like if I if I flip a coin, you know, I, I think that's the reason for it. If I if I flip a coin five thousand times and I find out that the coin is a true coin, it's it's actually fifty fifty. Does that give me any reason, useful information about what I should expect this? expect it to be when I flip it the 5,001th time. Right. And like, so in, in, in equating it into this question about um, Matthew Riley, right, what are the what are the odds that Matthew Riley is going to get uh, hurt when I play him through a day-to-day, -day, you know, get seriously hurt and be out for the playoffs? What are the odds? I think that there is truth that there are probably odds for that, despite the fact that it's since we are talking about a computer game, there are definitely odds. I think in real life, there are odds for that too, right? So you never know what the answer is until the results happen. It's like betting in poker. Even if you know what the right odds are, you can still lose, but you would still want to make that same bet because if you run it 100 times, you're going to win 70 and lose 30. Um, right. But looking I think that's the... There, there's two things here I want to touch on. Looking at the Snell situation, when the benefit of yanking him, I, I would almost guarantee... That I wish I would say guarantee. I my suspicion is that the decision to pull him when he was taken out of the game and put in whatever reliever, you know, if you're as long as you're not going like somebody who's bad, the the change if you ran that a thousand times, the change in win probability from making that move would probably be zero. The the effects of a single player in a matchup like the the very best pitchers are not so much better at getting batters out than the other good pitchers on your staff right like there's that there just isn't that big of a difference and that that's what i'm talking about with the coin flip thing is that we obsess over these managerial decisions under the assumption that when the manager made the quote-unquote wrong decision that it would have worked out when the other guy was in the game and like that's that's a that's not true. That's not how things work. That's like a logical fallacy, right? The the odds in baseball are pretty much what they are, and the very best players nudge them a little bit in either direction. Sure. Uh, and the very worst players, you know, do, do the opposite. Right. So I, you know, I don't know. I, I I as a fan, I get super worked up about those things as well. And when you have a Mike Matheny managing your team who consistently puts in the worst reliever in higher leverage situations, it makes you furious. But, you know, over the long run, I don't, I don't. Yeah, the, the, the Snell decision has a lot of moving parts and you have to play lots of different odds across different things. Right. You know, putting Anderson in instead of Snell versus any other pitcher. Um Knowing what you know about Snell, each one of those are degrees of freedom, and you can do um, do lots of different things. But at the end of the day, it still comes down to how you judge the set of odds. And if one one decision is a 62% chance win and another is 65% chance win, you'd like to do the 65% chance 
right? It's, but it's small. Right. The other thing you were starting to get into, and, and again, I can equate it into, into the Rockville situation is um, what are the stakes, right? I mean, if you're, you, you know, if you're in game 25 of 162 game season, you don't have any real, the stakes are quite low, <laughs> right? If you're in game six of the world series, the stakes are quite high. And so you're, you start to, you have to weight some cost benefit value of that. And so when we look at a playing a guy on, on day to day, I almost actually wonder whether that reverses in the sense of if I, I, I don't know, it's hard to call. Um, because the the downside to a hardcore injury right now is fairly high. Um, but on the other hand, the downside to it back in May could be that you don't even make the playoffs. So those are interesting value judgments, I think. Well, the, the other question I always have, the other thing that makes me lean towards benching guys with day-to-day injuries, even when the injury is minimal, right? The effect of being, because they tell you is this minimal effect on hitting, minimal effect on throwing, yada, yada, versus moderate versus whatever, right? Is I don't know that I know what minimal means. And my experience has been my very unscientific, I didn't actually record any numbers. This is just the impression that I've gotten, is that the minimal, in, let's just take hitting, minimal effect from an injury on hitting is enough to make that player significantly worse. You know, like if you're talking, it's not like the minimal is they have one point of batting average lower. It's like minimal is they're, if they're a hundred weighted runs created plus player, a minimal injury makes them a 90. And that's significant. You know, I would, I can probably find another guy that is good as this injury degraded player to to play the spot. So that's another reason that I lean towards benching guys is they're not it's not like you're just playing the guy and risking future injury. You're playing a not as good player when you play the injured person. And right. I think like my the impression I have is that a minimal effect is a significant degradation of their talents to where they're kind of one level lower, whatever that means. And um a moderate effect even is like you know, turns them into like a triple A player. Yeah. You know, and, I, so. and, you know, that's uh, number one, just to be direct, I, I have a very strong tendency to follow what you're saying in that it's very rare for me to ever play a guy who's out on a day-to-day injury. I will often even throw them onto the uh, injured list, but as a bare minimum, especially pitchers, I will set them to, you know, bench for four days while they're on day-to-day or something like that if I don't put them on the disabled, uh, on the injured list. Uh, that having been said, the, the thing that I like about what you're talking about, like, let, take it to OPS+. plus. Let's say that uh, a guy is a 115 OPS+, plus and a minimal injury is 5% of that, whatever that is, right? It goes down to 107 you know, you're now getting into essentially into that zone where you're talking about he's a good player. I mean, you know, 115 OPS plus is not dog meat. He's pretty solid. Um, you know, now he's essentially in that zone where a replacement player might be just as good. And if that guy is a 110, he's down into the 105, 104, and definitely replacement players will often do just as well as that. Um, um, speaking of like for a DH or first baseman, right? Like for it's going to be specific, uh, position yeah. specific, right? Right. You know, so at the end of the day, that's and you can do the same thing on on defense too. Uh, I often wonder about what the impact is on defense, right? Because they talk about hitting, running, and throwing. Um, right. You know, I I don't know what that is. I'm I'm not smart enough to know what that real impact is. So. You know, I, I like what you're talking about is that by playing Matthew Riley, Rockville is suffering potentially a bit of a performance lag, which is your backup strong enough to cover that. Plus is taking the gamble that he um, that he actually gets injured again. It will be interesting to see if, well, first off, merely the fact that we're talking about it will highlight it. <laughs> and so Aaron may rethink things or not. But of course, Aaron has his own plans, too. I like I actually like to watch what Aaron is doing because I try to ask myself, why is he doing what he's doing and uh, see if that uh, changes the way I look at the, at the game. But it will be interesting to see that now that Matthew Riley has had a setback, will he actually set him because of the setback or 
what, right? Um, yeah. I worry about setbacks too. I will admit, I don't know quite what they mean. I, I'm not smart enough to know what the injury code is really doing, but I worry about it whenever I get a setback because that makes my brain go, uh-oh. Um, I'm, just, uh, I'm just clicking around things while we're talking. Um, the On the Wanho Park watch, he has gained another tick of velocity. That's all. There you go. <laughs> Sorry. He's also putting up horrific ERA. <laughs> well, you know, again, I, I has no experience yes. anywhere outside of college, so I think that probably right. is a big, big thing there. Yeah. Yes, but on the other hand, uh, the other uh, teenage kid there was it Rodriguez um, is pitching quite well. So you know, Randy is one for two right this minute in current day performance by kids who can barely drive. He has also had a tick of velocity. Yep, those are all good. I want to throw out a, a different topic, right? I want to I want to take a left hand turn. Uh, Long Beach's uh, big reliever Cornelio Lozana's 18.9 strikeouts per nine innings. 18.9 strikeouts per nine innings. Yeah. Last year, Lorenzo Di Medici was up there in the 17, 17.9, something like that, strikeouts per nine. Mitchell Purcell this year is at 17.7 strikeouts per nine. Medici is third, I think, at 17.4, but I've got a data transposition and I'm not going back to look it up. The point is last year, Aaron was talking about um, getting back to Aaron. Uh, Aaron was mentioning how historic these numbers were. And we were in this big conversation about big inning relievers and how valuable they were. And we had for the first time the Nebraska was won in both leagues by big inning relievers. Um, you know, and one of the things that uh, several people were talking about uh, voting Di Medici in as a Nebraska, who Di Medici did not win it. It was uh, uh, Yellow Springs' Tiernan O'Macken who won the Nebraska in the Frick and Danny Leach in the Johnson. But the conversation was this is a historic performance by Lorenzo Di Medici. And now Cornelio Lozano is going that historic performance one time even further. And I admit, I kind of scratched my head at this idea that Di Medici would be voted for the Nebraska because of this one historic performance. And it really struck me because what I want to do, I want to twist the twist the knob, right? I want to talk about Roberto Ramirez. Do you know who Roberto Ramirez is? I do because you told me about him before the show. He's a guy on your team. Would you have known who Roberto, Roberto Ramirez is if I had not have told you? Nope. I'm willing to bet that there is perhaps only one other general manager in the league, and that is Matt Rechtenwald, who knows who Roberto Ramirez is. But he is the most historic reliever when it comes to strikeouts per walks. He is currently sitting at 33.5 strikeouts per walks. Yeah, that's absurd. In 56 innings. And this isn't unique. Last year, he was better. He had 68 strikeouts in two walks, so 34 strikeouts per walks. There is nobody even close to that. And to give you some, uh, the, the second best pitcher in the, in the league is Felipe Lopez at 11.7. I mean, we're talking about three times the rate of this historic performance by Roberto Ramirez. And to give you some context, 33.5. Steve Nebraska in Nashville peaked at 11.37. In yep. San Fernando, Eric Beckmeyer was 13.5, and Nebraska was at 11.67, better than he was in Nashville. Still, Roberto Ramirez is three times better at this. Strikeouts for walk is a fairly important stat for pitchers. I mean, it's not like... It's not dog meat, right? You know, no, it's, it's, I would argue it's one of the most important things to look at, right? And if you want to say right. strikeout per walk or if you want to go with strikeout rate minus walk rates, I would right. put it up there on the first two or three things I would look at evaluating a pitcher, maybe right. the first thing I would look at evaluating a pitcher. Right. Um, now, I am not going to uh, – to, uh, offend people's mindset by saying Roberto Ramirez should be the Nebraska winner, but should he win to Egan? Maybe. I don't know. It's It would be hard to give him, if a reliever wins in Nebraska, it would be hard to give him the Egan and not give the, the Egan to the reliever that won the Nebraska. That, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. The other reason I would say that maybe he shouldn't is simply usage. Um, there is a value to throwing a ton of innings, uh -huh. and... 
you know, would he be able to maintain these elite rates if he was a little bit more tired? I don't know. The biggest commentary I have on both the strikeout rates and the strikeout to walk rate um, of a guy like Romero Ramirez is these are not reflections of pitcher tools. These are reflection. Well, they are. I'm sorry. That's but they are not just a reflection of pitcher tools. They are a reflection of we have absurdly high stuffs in the league due to a rate due to a formula change in the move from 20 to 21 where they removed the cap that used to exist on the upper limits of ratings or they didn't remove it but they increased it so it used to be that you could have you know every pitch maxed out and your stuff wouldn't go past 13 oh um, yeah without a doubt and, and and just to be pedantic there i mean that's actually something that we can talk about for every stat in every situation right is that the stats that are actually created are and this relates to real life baseball, which is the whole glory of the conversation about um, almost any stat across any era. Stats are created by the environments that they that the stats are created by the players who make them, as applied to the environment that they play in. And right. what you're basically saying is we've been tweaking the league totals a little bit, and the ratings um, are a little bit imbalanced. Well, it's not just that, but this is a perfect storm, right? And you mentioned that. You just got right to the heart of it with the ratings being imbalanced. Roberto Ramirez's stuff isn't, like, all-time good, and his control isn't all-time elite. It's very good. 10 is among the best that we see. We, we, but overall controls in the leagues are bad right now and stuff is quite high right now and then conversely to that batter eyes are very low right now and avk is really low right now so it is the perfect storm for the there's a reason these records are all being set and it's not because the players are unlike players we've ever seen before it's because the combination of league totals and the relative tools of the player that the pitchers and hitters are matched up in such a way that it makes setting these records possible. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a part of what I want to get into because there's some weighing that goes on here. The environment that we're playing in is the environment we're playing in. At the end of the day, though, we have to talk about, you know, when I say, is he an Egan winner? You get into this question. I, I actually jotted down when you said it usage, right? I don't think I would vote for Roberto Ramirez as the Egan not because he's not qualified, but yes, the usage pattern that he is, um, it's very, very hard to suggest that Roberto Ramirez is more important to me than Turner O'Macken or Al Colbert, you know, or some others. I, I would I would vote for either of those two guys on my team before I would vote for Roberto, Roberto Ramirez. And so this question of historic performance, why does that matter? For me, I'm, what I'm actually twisting around to is Having had Turno O'Macken win the Nebraska last year, number one, I was intrigued by that and excited, but it was new thinking. And we've been talking about big inning relievers as being Nebraska candidates. But the longer I get, the further I get away from it, the more I look at it. And it actually just doesn't feel good to me because to me, the most valuable pitcher on my staff are my number one and number two reliever or number one and number two starters, right? If Turno O'Macken had had to start, and through 160 innings as a starter, he would not have performed like he start like he did as a reliever. That's where I'm with you. That's where I agree. And right. I, I was in the same boat. It was exciting to see the Uber reliever evolve to the point where they were doing this cool things and getting all these war and you know pitching nearly 200 innings right. and striking out 300 if, guys. But if Danny Leach pitched the same number of innings but started with inning one, he would not put up the same numbers. <laughs> well, and the question right. becomes, how much do you weigh in the fact that the game code is the reason they're that much better as relievers, that they, the game is hard coded to play their stuff up as as relievers, you know, or do you go, well, just because the game may be doing something suboptimal with allowing these guys to go out so often and making their stuff play up probably a little more than it should. Do, do we fault the, do we change the way we think about the players? Because I don't know, you know, but I, but in, but I do agree. Yeah, with I don't you know. That... I, I think there's lots of things going on. I mean, our conversation last time about Goose Gossage, right? Goose Gossage in real life would not have been the same pitcher if he started right. than as he was used because, you know, Goose Gossage never faced a three time through the order penalty. Right. And that's, that's exactly what I was going to get to. I, it is, considerably easier 
to come in and just wipe out six guys every, you know, every third, every second day, every third day than it is to take the ball every fifth day and have to get the same guys out three times. Yeah. And, and to be blunt about it, every time these days, the time has passed and my own personal mindset has evolved and so forth. Every time I look at Turner and O'Macken and I see Nebraska winner, what I think is he just stole Alec Wollenweber or Danya Chekhanov or because Valle did not have the kind of year to compete against (laughs) as a, uh, you know, Ultimately, this Nebraska award that Turner O'Macken won, good on him, fantastic. I'm excited about it, but it's Yellow Springs guy. But in reality, he probably stole it from a pitcher who really needed, deserved it more as a as a starter and overall value. And you get into, yeah, O'Macken, I can't remember his numbers, like seven war. He, I think he led the league in war, if I remember it right. It was like 7.2 or something like that. But again, if I were to yeah. start, when I look at, if I split him between his performance as a starter and his performance as a reliever, you know, maybe if he did 200, maybe if he did a Mike Marshall and did 208 innings or whatever Marshall did at that level and was really throwing three and four innings at a shot, right? you know, maybe I go, there's a, there's a spectrum there. Right. And I just don't know. That's really what I'm getting to. I looked at Roberto Ramirez and I went 33.5 strikeouts per walks. And Oh my God, that's not even, that's not even unusual. He did that. He was better than that last year. That is a historic performance, probably by a very large margin, because um, well, there's no other pitcher in the league doing that. Why wouldn't he be the best reliever in the league? Well, because. <laughs> well, and you can the other the the real life example of this is Eric Gagne, right? Like is the you know the the Eric Gagne, Cy Young, and all of those whatever however many saves that ended up being in a row. You know, that's the reason he got that Cy Young and all those saves in a row were historic. And, mm-hmm. and when you look at it and re- when you look at it in retrospect, you're like, yeah, but was that really better than 10 or 15 starters that were playing at the same time? And the answer is no, it wasn't like, it, you know, it just it was neat. But it wasn't he wasn't a better pitcher. It wasn't yeah. more valuable to his team. It wasn't better than, you know, like there's so, yeah. I, I The main thing that it. I wanted to do is to, to essentially vent out my mindset has changed over the past season as I look at things. And uh, like I said, it actually struck me because as I was coming to this kind of feeling, I actually asked myself, well, who would I rather have had injured, Turner O'Macken or, you know, Baye or Pinata or... At the end of the day, I kind of started my actual mindset is I'm starting to think, what are the values of these big relievers in relation to the starting rotation guys? I put them at like between a number two and a number three, right? If I've given my rotation and I know that Yellow Springs has a pretty solid rotation, but I would much rather lose uh, one of my big tier relievers than my number one or number two. Yeah, I, uh, number I three. I probably would rather have my big reliever than my number three. I, I think that that makes sense, both from like a like a conversational intellectual standpoint, as you just pointed out. But it also makes sense from like if you let's go to um, Danny Leach and let's look at the actual player, not just like a, what we think of in terms of usage, but if you took Danny Leach and put him and turned him into a starter, because Danny Leach can start. He has seven stamina and three pitches. If you made, so he would be probably like eight, you know, nine, seven, seven, eight, seven, seven, nine, seven, seven is probably what Danny Leach would be. Um, yeah. when, that's... when I, when I make him a starter in my little, um, editor thing, he's an eight, seven, seven. Okay. So like what, number three starter, right? Number two, he's probably at the, the, towards the high end of this, but like, yeah, he's either a very high number three or a medium two. Right. Medium could be up to a high number two. I don't know. I'd have to do the math it would again. Depend on how he played. He's a, he's such a he's actually probably not the best example, but the but he's the one I know off the top of my head that actually could be switched to a starter, and not all these guys can. So yeah, no, I like that. Um, while we're right. on the subject of kind of statistical, you know, the the league environments and how we think about numbers and those sorts of things, you wanna you wanna move on to the milestone stuff yeah i definitely wanted to spend some time talking about the uh, milestone work that uh, mike simon has done i don't want to let that go <laughs> that that is a really a cool piece of work and i do not want to let that go uncommented upon i know you we, you and i have both chatted about that a little bit 
And I think you've actually done some more in-depth stuff. The only real thing I want to start with is the thing that I love the most about that milestone work is the overall chart, right, where you see the number of milestones being hit every year. Um, the thing that struck me is we've got this little trough, right, from about 2015 through 2027. And it toggled my memory because way back some time ago, I did a study on draft classes, war per draft classes, and the 2015 or 2016 draft class was just humongous, 10 times more war coming out of that draft class than most of them that happened afterwards. And so what my hypothetical is when I see the work Mike did and I see this little trough happening, uh, my mindset is that this is an example of the environment changing and the environment in this case is you've got a whole bunch of really good young players playing for five, six, eight, ten years, which is removing, you know, eating out of the guts of a lot of guys' careers in their late 20s through late 30s, which is when they would be hitting milestones. So you see this trough, and then suddenly those players who are out of the 2016 draft start showing up and start playing, and in the late 20s, you see that milestone chart coming up again. Right. So to me, that's a great indicator of the environment that the BBA has been in. Um, yeah, so, I, I think there's, I think that's an absolute factor in the reason you see that trough. The other reason you see that trough is that Mike Simon has four hitting milestones and three pitching milestones. And the pitching milestones, if you just look, are much less commonly accomplished. The That is the dead ball era of my understanding of the BBA timeline. 20, 2015 through 2027 was, it was very, you know, talking league ERAs that were about where we are now. You know, I, Ricardo Diaz, for all of his greatness, his, he topped out around six to seven war. I think he might have had an eight war season, not because he wasn't outstanding, but because replacement level for pitching was just so high or the overall offensive ability of batters was so low, you know, that, that you just couldn't separate yourself from the pack that far. Um, right. So there's there's the other part of the reason that graph looks that way. Um, I think there's there's so many things to comment on with that. That overall trough is wonderful. It answered or that not trough. The overall graph is great. It answers the exact question I wanted is. Is this normal? Um, and what we find is that we're currently kind of just kind of at a normal amount of milestones, but more people, Randy found out later that, um, more people hit 300 home runs this year than is normal. And we just kept seeing that over and over again, like so-and-so hits 300 home runs. So that actually did stand out. I love the color dot visual representation to give you an idea of how common one thing is compared to another. Yeah. Um, that's. Fantastic. That's just, you know, visually, this is just a, just a masterpiece. It's great. Um, and then I haven't dug into it a lot, but you could probably find out some really interesting things about league environment by looking at the bottom, the purple bar chart at the bottom telling you when, you know, what are the years that people were getting 2000 hits and 3000 hits? And what were the years that people were getting all of these pitching? You know, was, is there a pattern? And, and, and there almost certainly is going to be parts where like, wow, we had a lot of great pitchers at that time, or we had a lot of great hitters. And again, as you're pointing out, when I say at that time, well, if they're hitting milestones in year X, that probably means the year that we had a lot of great players doing that was about five years before, right? Cause the milestones are always going to come towards the back end of their career, not during the, during the peak. But the thing I wanted, I've wanted to know for a while, and this gave me an answer is how does the BBA compare to MLB, right? We're talking about league environments and we have these milestone thresholds, 3000 hits, 500 home runs, uh, you know, 200 used to be 300 wins, but now 200 wins, you know, 3000 strikeouts, like, and we just assume. Yeah. The uh, comparison, I'm very interested to hear what your findings are on some of your comparison to major league versus right, the BBA because, because, you know, I mean, we try to do our best to use major league, you know, we are people living in this world. We think about baseball like we see it and like we study it and analyze it, but the game is clearly trying and the game is trying to simulate that. And it does a pretty good job of that overall, but it clearly has places where it will, will vary. So I, I like where you're going with that. What, so the and, and the way I looked at this is we have about the earliest the, 
the one thing about Mike Simon's tremendous work is that it's not entirely complete because the the old BBA data, the pre-modern era data, is difficult to access. So um, the, about the earliest players that are in this piece started playing or were drafted in 1985. So, you know, it's not a ton of time we've missed. But what that gives us is about 60 years, you know, uh, that Mike's uh, graphs here, uh, data here represents about 60 years of BBA history. And um, I said that we have for the milestones I counted for comparison from Major League Baseball, I said about 100 years, 1920 to now. Um, that gives you players that started playing around 1910. Um, but, you know, but it, 100's a nice round number. And anything before 1920 in Major League Baseball is really not the same game. That's pre-Babe Ruth. Um, so, you know, home runs just weren't what they are. And the so the other thing to consider is that the large part of our OTP experience is a game that is modeled after an era of more home runs and more strikeouts than much of Major League history. Still, I think the comparison pretty easily shows that the BBA is very, very easy to hit home runs in, and it is considerably easier to strike people out in across its 60-year time than the than Major League Baseball was. What you would expect, since we have 60 years of BBA and 100 years of Major League Baseball, you would expect that the BBA total for X milestone would be 60% of the Major League Baseball one if we had a truly representative of Major League Baseball with its eras of ebbs and flows and pitching and hitting. And we, we, we're we not going to exactly have that, but we also have ebbs and flows in pitching and hitting. Um, the Like I said, the late teens, early 20s were almost equivalent to Major League Baseball's dead ball area uh, when you compare them to like the home runs we have now and the strikeouts we have now. So it's it's not perfect, but it, it works for our purposes. And, and the striking thing is in 100 years of Major League Baseball history, there there have been 133 members of the 300 homer club in only 60 years of bba history we have 151 people so we have more 300 hitters in less time than major league baseball does we also have more 400 homer hitters in 40 fewer years than major league baseball does 76 to 55 we have almost as many people hitting 500 home runs so major league baseball in 100 years had 27 in 60 years, we've had 23. So, you know, 600, 700, we're actually the same, seven and two. But the, the big point here is our threshold for this guy is a special home run hitter, consider him for the Hall of Fame, should not probably be 500 home runs. It should probably be something like 550 or 560. We almost assuredly should not be getting excited about 400 home runs. So an example of this, and you know, all I ever do is make Kevin Dixon hate me, but <laughs> you know, that idea of that disconnect of man, this is a 400 home run first baseman. Why is it? Why are his WAR numbers not even close? Because 400 home runs isn't a huge deal. 400 home runs is almost like 300 home runs for Major League Baseball. It's a little better than that. Like if we were at the same rates for Major League Baseball, you would think you would say maybe 90. You would expect to see 90 people with 400 home runs now. Uh, with you, I'm sorry, you'd expect to see 90 people with 300 home runs now. We have 151. You would right. expect to see, you know, 40-ish people with 400 home runs. We have twice that. We have almost twice that number. It's 76. So right. it, it's just we hit home runs. Like the, yeah, and I think there's that's right. actually a affectation. I think of out of the park versus versus real life. Uh, we uh, talk about ask people what are league totals, right? What is in out of the park? What are the league total values? Now, uh, let me predicate that a little bit because I think what you're seeing here, uh, my gut reaction to your conversation. We haven't talked about this before. This is very interesting. I like to think about it. My my um, expectation is that overall across the years um while we have tweaked league totals a little bit here and there and we've done some interesting things our league totals are set to a more modern era so pretty much all of our bba seasons have been played with league totals that are focused i mean the league started in what 
1999 or 2001, uh, whatever that is, we have been playing our game in a more modern environment from the very beginning, right? When you look back on um, real life baseball and you start in the 20s and go through the 30s and 40s and 50s, um, you know, yes, Babe Ruth started in the 20s, but home runs did not happen very often. <laughs> and that's what makes Babe Ruth so weird is, you know, he hit more home runs than most teams did. So the environment, the run scoring environment is very different in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. We did not have the 60s time period with the mound so high and they changed the mound. What league totals are in context of the simulation is the rule set and, um, you know, things like changing the ball in the right. dead ball era, things like changing the mound in the 60s. Those are, that's what the simulation, whether it was on purpose or not, that's what the simulation really does with league totals. So if you were to set up league totals to play dead ball era baseball or league totals to play 1960s era baseball, they look very different from ours and hence our performance would be very different. So right. yes, and I think you... the idea of using 400 home runs based on our human mindset and history of what baseball has been in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Uh, Bobby, I like to say Bobby Mercer won the batting title with a 301 batting average back in 68, I think it was, or 69. To us, a 301 batting average is uh, it's just a good, you know, if you are a batting average person, you know. Guys should hit 340s and 350s. 301, who cares? Well, right. that was the best hitter in the league <laughs> because of the environment that they were in. Right. So, so Bobby Mercer, um, you know, he nobody nobody thinks of when people talk about the best hitters in in history. Nobody says Bobby Mercer. <laughs> right. And maybe they should. Right. At least for that year. And. Right. But the, the exciting thing for me about this is now we have some, we, you know, because of this work, we now have some context for what is the special number? What is the benchmark? And I, it's not 500 home runs. It's like I said, it's probably more like 550 or 560 right. or somewhere in there. You know, the interestingly, we do match up really well with the other ones, like all of our, you know, 1000 RBI, 1500 RBI, 2000, that sort of stuff. We're right at about 60% of the MLB rate. Same thing with hits. 2,000, 2,500, you know, we're right, again, just about 60%. Mm -hmm. The, the, those are pretty good. So the hitting, the outlier for us for hitting is home runs. And we really need to think about what we consider a Hall of Fame total of home runs and probably adjust the bars upward a little bit. How, how, how off are we on strikeouts? We are destroying MLB historic strikeout rates. Yeah, that's and I'm sure you expected that. Right. And, and the reason that I expect that is because is We're, first off, just because I'm a little bit of an OTP wonk. But beyond that, if you the the way I would put this in context of the stats and the runs environment, right, if our runs milestones are pretty much the same or hits milestones are pretty much the same or RBI milestones are pretty much the same, it makes sense that our wins and save would, would be quite similar in context because there are a certain number of wins in the game and you know i mean you you have to you have 162 games you're gonna have a certain number of wins <laughs> um but ultimately if you're going to say home runs are spiking but runs and so forth are not too far off then yeah. something's got to be going wonky it's strikeouts it's strikeouts. Right? home runs and strikeouts are the two things that will go the together other, the other thing that walks plays into might this. be another one that would be interesting right right and it'd be the, interesting to see some leaders uh, leaderboards on walks the other thing that's interesting about this is um or the other reason the strikeouts are high is, as you mentioned earlier, the BBA is basically its entire 60-year history has been more modern baseball where players strike out more. Right? Correct. And on top of that, even for BB, even for OTP, we are a high strikeout league. So only 2,000 players, I'm sorry, only 83 major leaguers have ever gotten the 2,000 strikeouts. You would expect us then at a 60% rate to have, you know, 60. We have 135. Only 39 people have ever gotten to 2,500 strikeouts. We have 77. You know, if if we were major league, if we were like major league baseball, we should have, you know, 30. You know, we have 24 people. We have six more people with 3,000 Ks. Strangely, though, uh, major league baseball has 4,000. Uh, for 4,000 strikeouts, there are four major league pitchers, and we have one. So there is an interesting thing going on, and there's another um, another spot. 
well, there's another spot we can see this in, but my supposition here is that we get to the earlier strikeout totals faster because players everywhere strike out more. But we have a similar number of truly all-time elite great pitchers, you know. So when you start to get to those things that require elite great player for a long, 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 long time, um, you end up with similar numbers. And it's the same thing. When you go back to home runs, at the lower totals, we have way more home runs. At the upper ones, we're actually pretty similar. Um, and that's just because the OTP apparently does a really good job with player distribution and age stuff and, um, you know, injury. And so it's, it's pretty impressive how similar some of these are. But again, the, but the easier to get milestones for things that we have, that we do well in our league, um, strikeouts and home runs, there are just more players that are, that are doing those things. So, um, there you go. The wins and saves are actually not that similar. Wins, if you think of it, there have been 118 Major League Baseball players with 200 wins. We only have 35. We only have six guys that have gotten to 250. Um, that's obviously not true because we don't have the older players included. But um, right. you know, from the stuff that Mike can collect, as opposed to 48, though, in Major League Baseball. And that's just because of the difference in how often players start, right, how long they go. Conversely, we are... We actually have Major League Baseball has four players with 400 saves. We have 20. And the reason for my hypothesis for the reason for that is most of Major League Baseball's history was not played in a save where the save was a big thing to get. Where nearly all right. of OTP, his, our league's OTP history, the BBA history is at a time when people were kind of had this idea that we should use our best relievers, the closer, and maybe only in the last five, six seasons, the majority of teams have stopped doing that. Right. So, um, you know, usage, right? It's pitcher usage. So right. anyway, this was, this was great for me. I am delighted to see that the only thing, and, and I don't think that we really look at pitcher milestones the same way we look at hitter mile, milestones. You know, I just, they, they don't, they, for whatever reason, that's just not the way, people work but i am delighted to see that we're that we really don't have to rethink anything besides home runs it's great that 3000 hits is still 3000 hits and that's now it makes me sound like i'm pro dusty roads and i'm not um <laughs> but well uh, i mean that, that's uh you know you, now you're getting into value versus right, uh, career but, achievements right, but it's still cool like that, right so. exactly it's but cool it to fun. see that the that the others that the other stats are relatively true to what they should be and i'll i'll post a, something with these numbers in it so you don't have to try to remember what i said now, the home run thing for me is, is, is the one that I'm also glad to have my, the thing I've been kind of wondering about borne out so clearly in data. It's always nice when you guess something and then you look at it and you find out that your guess wasn't wrong as opposed to when you guess something and you find out it's completely the opposite and then you have to question your understanding of like what you've been observing and why you think that. So, no, I think that, I mean, milestones are just fun. I mean, they're, they're, regardless, yeah. they're just kind of fun. And then the second thing to, you know, I I agree with you. I like seeing this uh, this work. It creates all sorts of fun thoughts in my head because the thing that I like the most about it, again, is in this context of the overall big picture and the idea that milestones are being created in ways that make sense to me baseball-wise rather than just funky ratings thing because yes we do have some you know the high stuff here in the league and things like that but for the vast majority the thing the things that you are talking about when you when you explain what you've been looking at and how you see them yeah ultimately the differences are mostly just environmental differences which make total sense and I like that. <laughs> right. As opposed I to like, like, oh, my goodness, the game is churning out stuff that doesn't even represent real baseball. Right. And, you know, to be blunt about it, way back in the 2002s, when I first uh, real life 2002s, when I came into out of the park, I would look at these numbers and I'd go, these are just screwed up. Things are just wrong. Right. And it uh, over about three or four years working with the system and Marcus, uh, I know we, we can com I can complain about Marcus all sorts of different ways, but the one thing that I cannot complain about whatsoever is in his heart, he wants to write a good game. 
Yep. And he makes changes. It Sometimes they're really slow. Sometimes they're not as good as I would like and other kinds of things like that. But that's just me imprinting myself on it. At the end of the day, I love these uh, this work uh, because, like you said, it really shows out of the park is doing things that make sense. And so uh, outside of just the raw, pure, fun fact, I just love – this is just one of my favorite charts to look at. It just is fun. Yep. So. Uh, Mike, Simon, thank you for this work. I think it's fantastic, and um, and I definitely wanted to spend some time talking about it. And Ted, thank you for all the work that you've just done digging through it, because I was unaware of a lot of the things you're talking about, yeah, it took and like it just minutes. makes me feel even better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all righty. So uh, one more thing that I want to mention before we uh, sign off, and um, do you have anything else that you would like to no, chat about? That's it. Okay. Uh, the one thing I want to mention is I put up a post, everyone, participation point rules are going to change a little bit uh, next year. So number one, you should check that out. And then number two, just as a uh, social reminder, we're coming to the end of the year. There's still a couple of teams that uh, could use a few extra points in order to hit their requirements and be in good standing. Everyone almost always does anyway, but I thought I would mention it Um uh, the league is doing a fantastic job across the board, and Yumiba guys are kicking butt when it comes to exports. You're going to see that when I when I roll that out. But this is like a a best year ever for Yumiba when it comes to actually managing their teams and keeping it competitive. It's been fun to watch them. With that, I, I guess I will uh, bring us to the end of this one, Ted. Thank you for your time, and um, look forward to talking to you again next week. Yep. Bye, buddy. You've been listening to the BBA Today, a podcast that covers the Brewster Baseball Association every day. Music is Bold Statement, available at presleyandstudios.com and used with attribution. Be safe and well, and we will hear you again tomorrow.